Welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And today, we're tackling puzzles and traps in Dungeons and Dragons. Puzzles are a part of the Dungeons and Dragons tradition. Some of the oldest dungeons have puzzles in them. When we look at video games like Skyrim that are heavily inspired by the tradition of Dungeons and Dragons, we can see that games like Skyrim have puzzles in them, largely because they are rooted and ingrained in the culture of this hobby. But I think Ray and I have both experienced sessions of D&D where the puzzle kind of interrupts our normal role-playing and maybe takes us out of the moment. If you're crawling through and fighting monsters, and then suddenly you have to stop and solve a math problem, it can feel a little bit like homework before you get to the next room in the dungeon, rather than a real heroic dungeon crawl experience. In the best case scenario, this is a lot of fun. We all kind of get to a puzzle and recognize that it's a puzzle, and we, we kind of put our dice and our characters to the side for the moment and work on this problem together more as players than as characters. I think that it is very difficult for the negative intelligence barbarian in the party to just sit out of a puzzle completely because their character might not typically engage in something like that. When a puzzle pops up in a game, it kind of gives us permission in a way to to pause Dungeons and Dragons and work on a puzzle. And sometimes that can be a lot of fun. But I think that more often than not, at least in my experience, puzzles have been a very unfun experience and a very jarring experience at my tables of Dungeons and Dragons. Just like with some of the other topics we've tackled, we do want to look at puzzles and find the way to do it right. Just because it's been a less than successful tactic for me and Ray as players a few times, it doesn't mean we don't want to try to put our own spin on it and make it something that can be a lot of fun in our games while still a part of the Dungeons & Dragons tradition of having puzzles in places where you might not 100% expect them. Today we're going to do a deep dive into what puzzles have always looked like in Dungeons & Dragons, and we're going to dismantle those puzzles. We're going to pick them apart and look at their different elements and call out the things that we think really work and the things that we think don't work very well. We're going to talk about the themes of puzzles. We're going to talk about ability checks in puzzles and how sometimes that can be a little bit jarring, similar to the mysteries episode that we did last year. And we'll spend a lot of time talking about what makes a puzzle challenging versus what makes a puzzle fun, and is there some sweet spot in between where you're maximizing both of those things? Similar to the episodes we did on mysteries, today we're going to talk a little bit more in the abstract about how we think of puzzles, and then we're going to put these ideas into practice in our next episode where we construct some puzzles for you so you can see our thought process as we design these kinds of puzzles for our own games. So to talk about puzzles, first off, I want to start with the idea of locking content behind a puzzle. In a classic dungeon crawl where you're going from room to room, 
If the plot moves forward in the next room and there's a puzzle keeping you from getting there, then your players have to solve this puzzle. If the puzzle is frustrating or they're not figuring it out, there's nothing else they can do to move on and continue the plot. And we think that this can be a really big problem with these classic types of puzzles. This is perhaps the most common example uh, that I see in published modules. I know that there was a puzzle that appears in Tomb of Annihilation, where to continue the plot, to get to the next piece of information that is vital for discovering the lost city of Omu, you need to get to the top of a temple. And the puzzle that is presented blocks the players. If they do not solve the puzzle, there is no other way to get to the top of the temple. The module even goes out of its way to describe how the magic that enforces this puzzle or this riddle is so ancient that all attempts to circumvent it through the use of spells or other magical means or even physical means fail. This is a very brave thing for a module to do. It's really setting up you as the dungeon master and your players to not have a good time. If the players can't solve the puzzle through their own wits, then they are blocked. And you as the dungeon master are put in a hard position where you either need to just keep giving your players hints until you walk them to the solution and basically hand them the solution, or you need to just wait for as long as it takes for your players to try the right thing. I think this experience of locking the plot behind a puzzle can be very antithetical to the yes and style of improv that is really important in a game of Dungeons and Dragons. If you want your players to feel like anything is possible in your world, you want to encourage them to come up with different ideas in the moment. And if you have a puzzle that your players cannot circumvent with other creative ideas, then you are saying no a lot of the time as a DM. And this is something we kind of want to avoid. So I think the best puzzle is one that your players can solve to get through to the next piece of the plot. And they'll feel really great if they do. This is your plan A. But also there's a plan B and a plan C for how they can get to the next piece of the plot if they aren't able to solve the puzzle or if they aren't as interested in the puzzle. Maybe there's some roleplay they can do or some spells that they can use to get to the next piece of the plot instead of needing to sit down as a group and solve a puzzle with like pen and paper at the table. And if you're the type of dungeon master that uh, is kind of listening to this and thinking, well, that kind of defeats the purpose of presenting a puzzle to my players, I agree with you. Uh, it does, right? So if, if there's another way around where you don't need to solve the puzzle, whether that be via a teleportation spell or a spell that allows you to create an alternate passageway to get <laughs> to the place that you're trying to get to instead of going through this door that's locked with a puzzle, then uh, that can kind of feel like, why have a puzzle at all, I guess. So if you're that type of person who really wants to present a puzzle to your players and they either solve it or they don't, and that's that, well, then you can still do that. Just don't put the plot behind the puzzle door. Put a cool magic item or some other optional benefit behind that really, really difficult puzzle that is almost impossible to circumvent without solving. And that way, your players know 
oh, okay, well, this kind of sucks that we weren't able to solve this puzzle, but we can move on and we can go forward and we can choose to do so at our own pace. I think another important point about this, Ray, is that if your players want to solve a puzzle, they might actually just do it anyways, even if they know that there's another way around it. If they're having fun and they think this puzzle is cool, they might just enjoy sitting down and solving it and not casting teleportation. And there's a reason maybe that they choose not to cast these spells. You know, spells are a finite resource, and anytime your players can avoid using them, that does have some in-game benefit. So I think this really puts the autonomy back on your player's side of the table. It allows them to engage with the puzzle. There's mechanical reasons for them to do it. And mostly, if they find it fun, I think they will sit down, stop play, and enjoy it and try to solve it. But if they don't want to, then they have a way around it, or they can just move on because, like you said, you've created a puzzle that doesn't lock the plot away. It's just locking a magic item away. To your point, I once gave a puzzle that was too difficult to Ali, Mark, and JJ. I thought that it was only going to take about 15 minutes for them to solve this sliding block puzzle, but instead we all sat down and tried to solve the sliding block puzzle together for the next hour. And we had a good time trying to like puzzle through this puzzle. And I made it clear to them after about 15 minutes that I had made a mistake as a dungeon master and I had chosen a sliding block puzzle from the internet that was too difficult. And they refused uh, to move on because they wanted to solve the puzzle so badly. So that was a very kind of interesting anti-example. Yeah, I think that's happened in my games too. And like I said, sometimes you just want to be taken out of the game and that's okay and you have a lot of fun. But if you're really trying to have puzzles and character moments where everybody is still being in character and your barbarian can still like maybe try to find other ways of doing things while your other players are working on the puzzle, I think that can be a, a really great experience too. And so one of the things you mentioned with this Tomb of Annihilation is a really good example of how to not build puzzles. And that is relying on really ancient magics. I think if we use spells that are in the player's rules, like Alarm, for instance, can be a really useful spell to start a puzzle for your players. They have to think about how they can not trigger this alarm, and they know the mechanics of how it works. But in the example of Tomb of Annihilation, there's a very ancient magic, and they're not quite sure how it works. And if the ancient magic is too restrictive and is just put in place to stop all other options for how you can engage with the puzzle, then your players don't get to be creative. Or if you do put an ancient magic in front of your players, maybe give them the ways to see how that ancient magic works so they can be creative about solving that puzzle. Yeah, I think Wizards of the Coast is perhaps the repeat offender. These hand-wavy, this is why you have to solve the puzzle and you can't go around it through alternative means. In Tomb of Annihilation, there's the temple that uses ancient magic, in, in finger quotes, as to like why all other attempts fail. In Rise of Tiamat, or Tyranny of Dragons, I think is the actual name, there is a maze that was constructed using consecutive wish spells and no uh, magic other than 
another ninth level competing spell can even help you get through the maze because of all the, the crazy number of wish spells that were used to construct the maze. And even in the puzzles that are presented in Tasha's, there's these sentences where it's like, the statue is impervious to all damage. It's like, even gods aren't impervious to damage in the Dungeons & Dragons setting, but somehow this statue that we've just happened across in this dungeon is impervious to damage. How does that make sense? As you pointed out, Ariel, there are so many spells on the spell list that give these cool trap ideas. You can create really cool puzzles and traps using Glyphs of Warding, the Alarm spell, Invisibility, uh, and the list just goes on and on and on. You don't need to resort on these uh, kind of like hand-wavy this is why you can't use any of the abilities on your character sheet to solve this puzzle. You as a person need to solve this riddle. I think that's a great point that when you put things in the game that are less interactive, like the statue that can't take any damage, and, and Wizards, like you said, does this a lot, you're really taking away from the ability for the players to creatively solve the puzzle. Instead, they have to kind of narrowly solve the puzzle. And that's something we want to avoid. So the next thing we want to talk about is how your experiences in D&D already, I think, can create puzzles that have this very creative solution space. And that when you are playing Dungeons & Dragons in general, and you put a multitude of challenges in front of your players, they are, in fact, getting the experience of solving a puzzle. If your players are in a heist scenario, they know that they have a constraint of needing to do something quickly before maybe the morning comes, and they need to do something quietly so that nobody hears. This is creating the conditions where they have to stop and come up with creative ways to get around maybe alarm spells or different guards walking around, and that is, in fact, solving a puzzle. To your point, a lot of the time, combat, just regular combat, is a puzzle. And I think combat becomes more of a puzzle the more you introduce roles into the combat. It's not so much of a puzzle if you're fighting against four or five of the same exact enemy, but if you were to put a very, very sturdy monster that doesn't hit very hard in front of your players and have a, a very, very high damage output ranger or archer or mage behind that huge, sturdy brute, all of a sudden you've presented a puzzle to your players. How can we get through this combat without losing as many resources as possible, without losing our health, and without spending too many spells? And now your players start to come up with a plan. Oh, well, what if we teleport behind the, the large monster who can't move very quickly, and we as a party take out the person who's doing a bunch of damage first, and then we go and attack the brute? And whether or not your players solve the puzzle is how many resources they had to burn to get to the other side of that encounter. For sure. I think multiple roles in combat is a great way to create a puzzle. I also think something else we've talked about can really contribute to a puzzle in combat, and that can be different win conditions and different goals in combat. 
For instance, if there are people who've been taken hostage, that is a puzzle that you need to solve. Not only do you need to do damage to things, you also need to rescue some creatures. And I think that really creates a puzzle-solving mindset for your players when they're in combat, and they'll still get that really great puzzle experience from D&D. But overall, I think that this type of thinking really relates well to a concept that you described to me, Ray, of thinking about puzzles as vaults rather than locks. I was wondering if you could kind of explain that, because I thought it was a really great concept and even applies to these combats that we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So when Ariel and I were brainstorming and taking notes for this episode, I realized that the times where I felt least satisfied when I've presented a puzzle to my players is when they completely bypass the puzzle, but also there was only one step to the puzzle. In my head, there was there was just the one puzzle, and because they got past it, that's it. The puzzle's over, and you guys just totally went around it, and that sucks. And now I'm not having fun, and you guys got one over on me. But if you change your mindset as the person who's designing the puzzle from, oh, there is one lock and the key to that lock is the solution to this puzzle, to more of a vault mindset where the puzzle isn't just this one door. The puzzle is a series of challenges and encounters for the players to need to get past one at a time. In that circumstance, if your players bypass one of the pieces of your vault, well, who cares? There's there's four or five other things. I'm sure they'll solve one of those puzzles the way that perhaps the puzzle was designed. It's okay that my players decided to opt out of this first puzzle or this second puzzle that I presented to them as a part of this vault. And this is just the name of the mindset that I recommend that you have when you're designing this type of a puzzle. Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be a vault. So if there is a door, and perhaps in the original way that you wrote the adventure or the original way that the adventure is written, there is a passphrase to get through the, the door, and you either know it or you don't, or you can either figure it out or you can't, well, that's a lock right? That's not very much of a vault. If your players teleport to the other side using dimension door or they use pass wall or stone shape, well, that's very disappointing because they completely bypassed your puzzle. However, if there's an alarm spell on the other side of the door, well, then that's very interesting. So your players bypass the puzzle and perhaps they that was a decision that they made. They knew that there was an alarm spell on the other side, and they decide, no, it's worth it. We need to get to the other side of this door, and we can't solve this particular puzzle because it's too hard, but that's okay. We know another way through. Well, now as the dungeon master, there's a feeling of satisfaction there that the players picked and chose the parts of your puzzle or your vaults, your series of challenges that they wanted to interact with. Yeah, I think that phrasing, a series of challenges, is perfect for what we're talking about. And a really, really classic example you might think of is the end of the first Harry Potter book, where there's a series of challenges that the kids need to get through before they can find the Philosopher's Stone. 
If you don't remember, there's one where they have to get through these ensnaring vines, and then there's the chess game that's famous, and they also have to get past Fluffy. And each of those rooms could be thought of as a puzzle. But if we think of them as a vault altogether, we can now see a series of puzzles. And you can imagine presenting your players with this opportunity, where now instead of using the fire for the ensnaring vines and playing a game of chess right in a row, they could maybe choose to fight the vines and fight the chess characters because they're strong, powerful heroes and they don't want to sit and solve a puzzle. But then finally, when they get to the room with the flying keys, they actually need to solve a puzzle because there is a trick for which key to use, and that's going to be faster than trying all the keys themselves. So I think this mindset really creates a really fun adventure for your players where they're making choices at each step of the way. Instead of stopping and solving a puzzle because there was no other way to get through. The next point that we want to really focus on is this idea of, does your puzzle sufficiently rebuke boring workarounds? Players that spend valuable resources to bypass a puzzle should be rewarded, not shut down. So in the example of Tomb of Annihilation, where you're trying to get to the top of the temple, well, if your players use their most potent spell slots to get through that puzzle to get to the top, they're using their most valuable resource. It's very, very disappointing as a player to be told you make no progress and you lose that spell slot. But that's very different from setting up the puzzle in a way where you make it so that your players have trouble using their first and second level spells to get through the puzzle. I think there's a really great example where you can see this play out in Star Trek, and that's with the Kobayashi Maru test. In this case, we have a puzzle where the player's plan A and plan B don't work. It's analogous, I think, to your point, Ray, of not letting your first and second level spells bypass the test. But Kirk does eventually figure out a way to cheat the puzzle and win. We eventually gain a lot of respect for Kirk in some ways because... He was able to get around the puzzle. And I think this is an amazing fantasy that players want to be able to experience sometimes, where they get around the puzzle and they cheat to win. And so when I'm designing puzzles, I like to think of the Kobayashi Maru as a good example where I come up with the ideas for a puzzle and I don't necessarily know how my players are going to succeed. And I think that can start me off in a scenario where the players are going to be encouraged to cheat to win because I don't have an obvious easy solution. But then afterwards, I also think it's important as the DM to look back at what you were doing and see if there are some ways that you as a player would solve this puzzle. Because I don't want to put a puzzle in front of my players, like Ray said, where it totally stops all the action and they have to spend a bunch of time sitting and waiting patiently because they're looking for a hint from the DM and the plot is on the other side. The Kobayashi Maru is such a good example because in the plot of Star Trek, it is not the example that you point to where you go, that pilot cheated to try and win the Kobayashi Maru, and therefore they were punished, and they're not a main character anymore, right? Like, the main character of Star Trek is the character that cheats to get around the puzzle. They are rewarded for their ingenuity and their cheating 
with the spot of the main character, <laughs> right? Like we're gonna we're gonna follow your story because you're so interesting because you found a way around this traditional puzzle that uh, up until now has been unsolvable. Exactly. That is a super heroic moment. And so I think the frustration that Ray and I have felt when a puzzle was really unsolvable and only meant to be solved in one specific way actually doesn't feel so heroic sometimes. I don't feel like I'm a creative character doing wild world-changing things. Anybody could have come in and solved this puzzle. And I think that that sometimes breaks a little bit of the verisimilitude for me of the heroic fantasy of my character being really, really special. If Ariel could solve the puzzle, then my character and every other character in this world should also have been able to solve this puzzle. And it wasn't a very good puzzle in the first place. I do think creating heroic moments where you have to use your special heroic abilities to get past the puzzle is a good thing. And then if it's one part of a vault rather than the only lock that is between you and the next step, then it's okay if you used a spell for one thing and used your creativity and problem-solving skills for another. You were a hero and you got to use both sides of your heroic fantasy. The powerful, intelligent creature, but also the, the magical creature that Nobody else could have been in the same position. Nobody else had the same magics as you did. And, and you got to move on because you were special. And that's a really good jumping off point for the next kind of category of bullet points that we want to talk about. And that is, how can you make your puzzle feel like it naturally belongs in your world? In the example you were just talking about, Ariel, we talked about how it is cool or good to be able to make your players feel special, to be able to bypass a puzzle in a way that a less powerful person couldn't. When deciding what types of puzzles you want to put into your game and what types of things should be allowed to circumvent those puzzles, you can ask yourself how abundant magic is in your setting. Will the keeper of the puzzle be surprised that you were able to bypass a door by using the knock spell? If Knock is a very common scroll that can be bought in the magic shop in Waterdeep, well, probably not. And it probably doesn't make sense that the keeper of the puzzle or the person who is trying to protect something would just put it behind a door that is accessible via the Knock spell. However, the Dimension Door spell uh, is, is a fourth level spell. You have to be a pretty powerful adventurer to be able to use Dimension Door. Perhaps the Keeper knows that Dimension Door exists, but perhaps they think that the thing that they're trying to protect is not valuable enough for someone who is so powerful that they're able to use Dimension Door to come and try and steal their stuff. Yeah, I think magic is a great example of how you can kind of level off certain puzzles where other characters aren't able to access this thing because they are just not powerful enough. But for you, you can get into the vault. You can start the process of these challenges and puzzle solving because you have this high-level magic. There's another obvious resource that is hard for many people to come by, and that's money. And I don't think you necessarily want to just use gold as one of the locks that gets you into your vault. But I do think maybe gemstones could be an interesting resource that if to start working on a puzzle, you need diamonds... Many people aren't going to be able to even try to solve the puzzle. 
And that's a good way where you can show your characters that they are special and somebody else would not have been able to get into this vault if they just showed up and found it and were in the right place at the right time kind of situation. It's a great way of also explaining to the players why no one else has solved this puzzle before. I think sometimes when you put a puzzle in front of your players and there's there's nothing dangerous or perhaps prohibitive surrounding the puzzle or the way that you need to solve the puzzle, it really does beg the question, well, surely someone else has to have tried this in the last 2,000 years. How is it that this magical treasure is still behind this door? Yeah, sure, we're smart, but are we smarter than every person who's visited this ancient tomb in the last 2,000 years? Mm, Probably not. Exactly. I think that is a huge part of the verisimilitude for me. It's what keeps me excited and makes me solve the puzzle in character rather than step out of character for a long time to try to solve a Sphinx's riddle or something. It's because I know that my character's resources are really important right now and I'm using them. So it kind of keeps me in the moment, keeps me role-playing and in character. And I think as GMs, that can be a really hard thing to do when you present a puzzle to your players. So I really like making your players' resources that other characters in the world might not have a part of the puzzle in some way. And the idea that we play Dungeons & Dragons in a post-apocalyptic world really helps us do this. So most uh, Dungeons & Dragons worlds take place in a, a world that there was once a magnificent civilization that existed, and it has since fallen. And that's why there's all of these rare magic items around that no one knows how to create from scratch anymore. Uh, And you have to find them and go into these ancient places to find these really powerful items. So in the example that Ariel gave, where people haven't been able to get past this puzzle, because, well, this this isn't a a puzzle. It's a, a door that was constructed uh, basically as a toll booth to be able to trade with the the mountain dwarves of that bygone age. Uh, And if you read Old Dwarvish, then it's not a puzzle at all. The instructions to the door are written there, so now your players can use comprehend language as a way to maybe get around the puzzle. And uh, back then, diamonds perhaps were more commonplace than they are today. It was it was like handing a single or a two dollar bill over to the toll person as you were just going through. Is just a common practice that everybody engaged with. Uh, and another example that we brainstormed was the idea that back in the the age of Arcanum or whatever your highly sophisticated magic time period was. Perhaps there were walls of force around in places, almost as like security checkpoints, to keep out the riffraff, the everyday people who were not skilled or powerful enough uh, to teleport through a wall of force. And this might be a way to keep the rabble out of your uh, sacred libraries and things of that nature. I think another interesting kind of mechanism for how to make your players believe in your puzzle is to think about the different reasons why puzzles exist in the world in general. And if you can create stories that put plot devices in front of your players where puzzles make a lot of sense and are natural, then the puzzle themselves can maybe be a little bit more puzzly and a little bit less, you know, classic roleplay D&D style of puzzle. 
and your players will still believe in it. So I think that there are some really great classic examples of this, a trial from a deity or a trial from a master that needs to see if you are worthy, I think is a good example where you can kind of put a bit of a puzzle in front of your players and there's an in-game reason why they have to solve this puzzle. I think that a an overused or perhaps a, a bad way of presenting these more very puzzly things to your players where there isn't really a reason why it's there. Uh, it doesn't really make logical sense. Like, like why, why is this puzzle here? It just makes it impossible for everybody who wants to use this door that everybody needs to use to get in and out. Uh, it, it makes no sense is the, the wizard who has gone insane and filled their wizard tower with all of these riddles and traps. Um, to me, that feels like a very overused trope where it's it very on its face, where this is just an excuse for me to put some like really wacky puzzles in front of the group. I saw on the internet the other day a, a puzzle where there was a room with a giant hand like on the door and the answer to the riddle or the puzzle was to use big b's hand to summon a giant hand and shake the hand of the the giant stone hand and that's what opened up the door and i was thinking in my head i'm, I'm just like oh this is the exact type of puzzle that is not to my taste i'm sure there's lots of people out there who who love this type of thing and and we've spoken before about how everybody who plays dungeons and dragons has different tastes and preferences but this was the type of puzzle uh that if that were to be put in front of me as a player i would be asking all of these questions, my verisimilitude would be completely shattered. For sure. I think, you know, some of the puzzles that I like, you don't always like as well. And for me, I'll maybe try to introduce some cryptography or biometrics into my game. If there's a giant, a, a thumbprint scanner of a giant is going to be maybe kind of hard for your players to spoof in some way. And, and they'll have to use some creative workaround or maybe use a spell or find a giant or do something to engage with this. And for me, that, that can be a fun puzzle with lots of different workarounds. Uh, the cryptography ones maybe are less fun for some people. I'm a bit of a math nerd. I studied math in school. But I think as long as you have ways to get around it, introducing a thieves guild that, that uses some sort of key and cipher system to communicate and showing your players these communications is a fun puzzle that I like to introduce in my games. Again, especially if there are other ways for your players to figure out the communications of the thieves. Obviously, detect thoughts is a good option for stuff like that if you can find one of the thieves and get nearby them. Uh, but maybe one of your players likes to play a really high intelligence character and you can give them some tools and some ideas for actually solving this cipher system. And maybe that makes them feel very like Alan Turing out there breaking codes and saving the world. So I think that that can be a really fun way to introduce puzzles in a very in-character way while still giving your players options around the puzzle if they don't want to solve it. And this, I think, goes back to some of the examples we were giving earlier and is another type of way to explain why there is a puzzle in your game. So we talked about a godly trial. That's a really good excuse for a very, very specific type of puzzle, a way of rationalizing why that exists in the game. We talked about wizard insanity. This idea that Ariel just 
put forward is a very rational reason why uh, a puzzle might exist in the world, which is to protect something uh, or like truly trying to keep people out. So you have a door and it has a specific passphrase and the passphrase changes on a like a rotating basis. And for anyone who wasn't at home in Thieves Guild during the time that they thought of a new password, well, they need a way of communicating the new passphrase to the people who arrive at the Thieves Guild. So they put the things that are necessary to figure out the password out in front of the door in some way. Uh, and if the players know about the puzzle, then presumably they are in a position where they might be able to figure it out too. Another point that we wanted to bring up is whether or not the puzzle makes sense in the world. So I think Ariel and I have different thresholds here, uh, where Ariel is, is more willing to suspend disbelief in order to solve a puzzle, whereas for me, I'll start to kind of notice things a little bit earlier. One example of a type of puzzle that can damage uh, my verisimilitude or kind of like remind me that I'm playing a board game as opposed to embodying the character that I'm trying to role play is when the puzzle has to do with the English language. The reason why this is for me is, well, if the characters speak common, which for us is English, that's kind of similar to how an American TV show might be dubbed into uh, German or French to maintain verisimilitude for someone who speaks those languages. Like we're almost getting the, the dub of what our characters are saying to one another translated into English from common, uh, which, is this, which is this fantasy language that exists that I don't speak. I can suspend disbelief on that, uh, and, it, and it helps the game flow. But once you start to shine a spotlight on the English language because of a, a puzzle, well, that kind of starts to take me out of that verisimilitude. For example, a riddle that depends on letters uh, for English words can start to get a little bit weird. Because imagine, for example, that common was German. When my character looks at a, a portrait, they see a bat. And the, the answer to the puzzle is that you need to use the first letter of the animals that are on the portrait and arrange them in a specific order. So the first letter that I'm supposed to pull from that portrait is the letter B. But in German, <laughs> bat is Flattermouse. So if the riddle demands that I were to know that the first letter of the picture of a bat is a bee, that can be a little bit weird for verisimilitude for me. Strangely, I have no problem doing math <laughs> in a world. Like, like if, if math is in the puzzle, I can spend a lot of time working on a math problem without it feeling like it harms my verisimilitude. And I imagine that that's the exact opposite for a lot of people. For, for someone who doesn't do a lot of math as a part of their job or perhaps hates math, I imagine getting a math problem would remind them that they're playing a game very quickly. Yeah, I think that definitely is a great point that if I was able to solve a cipher in game where 
It was a single replacement cipher or something like that. And I know that there's a bunch of three-letter words. And I can take a guess that if the end letter of those three-letter words shows up all over the place and is used all the time, then the word is probably the and that last letter is probably E because it's the most common letter and all these kinds of things. Like, I would feel like I'm doing something really cool in the game. But I think, like Ray's talking about, this is a very English-specific thing. It's maybe not going to feel like a super heroic thing for your players or they might just not feel like they are in character because their character wouldn't know all these things and they wouldn't do this and maybe trying to ask for help for a word puzzle is not something that your characters want to do when they're playing D&D but I do think that there are many puzzles that we can construct where your players are using their heroic abilities are using their brains and still solving puzzles uh, but doing so in ways that are more setting appropriate than just necessarily the types of like homeworky, weird lettery word scramble things that have shown up in historical games and have shown up in a lot of published modules that we're not necessarily a huge fan of. We've made a lot of progress through these bullet points. There are two last things that we want to talk about. The first is something that came up when we were talking about mysteries, and that is how many ability checks are worked into your puzzle. Similar to mysteries, Ariel and I argue that you should really try to not include as many ability checks in the puzzle as possible. It can be very frustrating as a player to be given a puzzle and to spend 15 to 20 minutes working on the puzzle, only to discover that your dungeon master has been withholding a necessary piece of information waiting for a player at the table to go, well, uh, I investigate the far wall. Oh, make an investigation check. Eight. It looks like a regular wall. Player number two raises their hand. I want to try an investigation check on the far wall. This is 20 minutes later, of course. They roll. Fifteen. The dungeon master then tells them about the key piece of information that they've been withholding for the last 40 minutes that you can't solve the puzzle with until you find it. That is just a bad experience. If you're going to give a puzzle to your player, make sure that you aren't hiding key pieces of information behind these random and arbitrary ability checks that your players are supposed to just know to do. I think the most important thing for me with these is that I don't want to feel like a puzzle is dependent on a die roll. I think that is antithetical to puzzles in D&D for me. Like, I want the puzzle to be a thing that I can solve. Die rolls don't always go in your favor. Like, you can roll three dies in a row that don't work out so well, and suddenly, if your puzzle is dependent on ability checks, you know, even if they're, you know, physical checks, you know, strength checks or agility checks, you're really hurting your players, I think, in a way that can be very unfun. If they have opportunities to make up for bad rolls, then I think it can be a good experience. And I think having multiple conditions for success can be good with die rolls. Like let's say your players want to overhear something because the thieves in the earlier example are talking and they want to try to overhear some information. If they roll really high, you give them more information. If you, they roll lower, you give them less information. I think this sort of can work out well if your players are already looking for hints. You can use die rolls to determine how much of a hint they get. 
But even that can be unfun in, you know, kind of what Ray was describing as your players want to get around this puzzle. They want to try something else. And now you're using a die roll to determine if they can or not. And like three bad die rolls in a row happens 12.5% of the time. It's really likely that your players will fail die rolls. You have to be prepared for that as a DM. And when I'm putting puzzles in front of my players, I don't want their success to be determined on random chance. I want their success to be determined by their own abilities and their own decisions. And of course, this brings us to the situation where a player gets frustrated with the puzzle and they ask the question, can I just make an investigation check or an intelligence check to see if my character solves the puzzle? I'm not smart enough to solve this puzzle, but my 20 intelligence wizard is smart enough to solve this puzzle, so I just want to roll for it. As a dungeon master, this is an unfortunate circumstance to come up because it does mean that on some level you have failed to present your players with a compelling puzzle. Your players probably want to engage with your puzzle authentically and solve it uh, with their own wits first because that is a more fun experience than rolling for it. If your player wants to roll to solve the puzzle, then that means that they are probably starting to feel very frustrated. And you as the dungeon master should really try to read the room and see, is this the only player who's frustrated and they're trying to kind of run past the other player's fun and get past this puzzle before the other players are ready to give up on the puzzle? Or is it that I've accidentally locked the plot behind this puzzle and my players are done with it, they're not having fun anymore, and unfortunately, we should just move on. I think one of the points that you bring up here that I at least try to be proactive about is this idea of a very intelligent player engaging with the puzzle. Like, I think in those circumstances, sometimes the player isn't totally frustrated with the puzzle, but in character, they just feel like they should get something for their character. They look at their character sheet, and it should mean something in the game. And in that case kind of like what we were talking about with needing diamonds to solve a puzzle earlier, I introduce the puzzle because the player has a 20 intelligence. I'll say, your player is so smart, you notice something in the room, you see that these people are using a coded message, even though it sounds like they're talking normally, because you are a very high intelligence character, and then from there, they can get to work on the puzzle. So I think at least part of that feeling of like, my character should be good at this, like, I'm frustrated, can be engaged with in a proactive way. But definitely, I agree with Ray, if your players are asking for roles to solve the puzzle, maybe give them a way to move on to the next thing. Maybe interrupt the scene in some way. Have something happen in the scene in character such that they're not engaging with the puzzle anymore. There's something else going on in the moment. And either they can come back to the puzzle later or the puzzle is no longer relevant because the circumstances have changed. That's, I think, one way to maybe fail forward a little bit if your puzzle didn't work out. But if all else has failed, you know, maybe you do let them roll that die and maybe you hope that they roll high. And if not, you end the session and figure out a way to come up with something more interesting next time. Yeah, absolutely. 
we always want to reward those players uh, and kind of like call attention to the things that are heroic about them. So when you're planning that puzzle on the outset, that's a great time to reward a character who has a super high intelligence. Maybe set aside some clues that are really big clues that you think that your players should get over the average person who comes along and tries to solve this because of that character that has the observant feat or just a super, super high intelligence score. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. Next time on Running Off the Rails, Ariel and I will talk about how we applied these principles that we talked about today to our very own puzzles and traps that we are going to be writing in between this episode and the next episode. Hopefully those examples will spark your own imagination of the types of puzzles that fit for your world and the types of puzzles you want to put in front of your players. Until next time, I'm Ariel Rasko. And I'm Raymond O'Connor. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails.